Hello, and welcome to the Her Head and Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. Usually, I tend to watch art house and world cinema. Today's episode is going to be about Nicholas Roeg's 1973 horror film, really, called Don't Look Now. It's an it's a film adaptation of a Daphne du Maurier short story. And so I'm going to talk about the film and also the story, the experience of uh, watching a film once you've read the source material. And so I'm going to go into a lot of different things. And it's going to be about loss and grief and uh, horror films and, you know, just all kinds of different things. I have a lot that I want to talk about, actually. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, I'm a writer. I consider myself a dreamer. I love literature, art, poetry. Um, I have a great curiosity about the world and I love and crave knowledge, really. Um, That's the way that I would describe myself. Um, I have developed this really intense passion for cinema over the last few years, probably since about 2011. I really fell in love with art house cinema and, and world cinema, you know, films from other countries outside the United States and outside the English speaking world. And so I created this podcast as just a way to share that passion with other people. I also wanted to make film more personal. And what I try to do is to weave in my life with the films that I watch. Um, that's a really important thing to me because cinema is life-saving for me and it's life-affirming and it's a very personal experience for me and sometimes it's sort of hard to put into words but I just want to talk about films I live in a rural area don't have an art house theater near me don't have any kind of cinephile culture where I live so I'm sort of isolated in this passion for film and um, so this podcast is a really great outlet for me to communicate my passion If you're new to the podcast and you don't know what the title refers to, it's from an email I sent a few years ago to a friend when I was watching a lot of films at the time, and I just wrote that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. And so I think that phrase perfectly encapsulates my relationship to cinema, how I'm always thinking about it, how it's really sort of taken over my life, taken over my mind in many ways. This podcast does have a Patreon where you can help to financially sustain and support it. Um, I would love to have you as a patron if you would like to do that. You can find uh, more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. And there's all kinds of rewards and extras for you there. One um, reward is that you can get a shout out in each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to Olivia, Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, Jesse, and Lindsay. Thank you all for being patrons of the podcast. I really appreciate um, your support and I appreciate all of you who listen to the podcast and who um, engage with it. And it, it means a lot to me. This podcast is... A really big passion in my life I just wrote the other day how much I love it like I just I love creating these episodes 
Um, I feel like I'm gradually finding my voice, I hope, and I'm finding my confidence. And for me, and I'm someone that struggles with a lot of things, um, and I'll talk more about that later on in the episode, just about personal tragedy and loss and grief and things like that, which I tend to talk about a lot on the podcast. I'm very open about my mental illness and about the struggles that I've had in my life, and I do struggle with anxiety and depression, and that's a big thing that I have to deal with. And without health insurance or without any kind of access to therapy or, or any kind of help with it, I just kind of have to cope the best way that I know how. And so um, this will be the 40th episode of the podcast, which is crazy. I created it in December of 2016, and now it's November 2017. So we're sort of fast approaching the one-year anniversary of the podcast, which is just crazy. This has just become something much more than I ever thought it would be. And I'm actually, I was reflecting on it a few days ago. I'm actually really proud of myself for what I've created with this podcast. Now, I don't have a big listenership or anything. Um, There's just a few of you who listen. It's really not a lot, um, honestly. But when I started it, I really didn't have any kind of expectations so it's more people listen to it than I thought would you know I thought maybe five or ten people would listen to it or something you know so you know when you get a little bit more than that or something it's it's a surprise it's a pleasant surprise but I've managed to put out an episode almost every week for the last few months since probably April or May and I'm really proud of that like I've put out episodes through depression. I've put out episodes through physical pain that I've been that I go through. I've put out episodes through a lot of stress and a lot of um, things that I've been going through. So I, I like to take a moment and just acknowledge that I am proud of myself for putting these episodes out and um, and trying to create something you know there's still a lot of dreams that I have for this podcast a lot more that I'd like to do I don't have the means or the resources for it right now but you know sometimes your dreams kind of keep you going and it kind of helps to think oh well maybe one day I'll be able to to do more with it or to build it into something else but for now I'm really happy um, that a few of you do listen and that you like what I have to say and and that you value it. So I'm just really, I just wanted to acknowledge that I've been putting out these episodes and I've been creating this podcast through some difficult circumstances and that I am proud of myself for that and that I think that it in some way that is an accomplishment and um, an, an achievement really for me personally um and so i just wanted to acknowledge that for a moment so thank you to those of you who have been here from day one or who have been here from really early in in the podcast it's just really amazing to think that it's almost been a full year that's just that's wild to me right so before i get into don't look now i wanted to talk a little bit about things that have been going on in the film world and one of those is the Harvey Weinstein um, scandals. And um, as many of you know, over the last few weeks, a lot of women have come out publicly and said that Harvey Weinstein sexually assaulted them or sexually harassed them 
Ashley Judd was one of the earliest, and then we had Rose McGowan, Asia Argento, Mira Sorvino, um, Lupita Nyong'o, Daryl Hannah is probably the most recent, just a few days ago. I didn't talk about it at first because I just, I felt like it was really big, and I felt like there was probably going to be more things coming out. And so I wanted to sort of wait, and I wanted to think about it a little bit more, and I wanted to read some more things. And I don't have a lot to add to what other brilliant women have been writing about this. You know, there's some amazing essays on the New Yorker, on the Atlantic, um, on the New York Times, you know, all kinds of publications, all kinds of blogs, you know, women in Hollywood, The blog, that blog has been covering this a lot. And so... I don't necessarily have anything deep or, or, you know, um, important to add. I think (laughs) I'm a feminist. I know that we live in a country. I know that we live in a world that's deeply patriarchal, misogynistic, and sexist. I've talked about it on this podcast. I've talked about films that address the violence against women and the sexual violation of women, whether it's Lee Chang Dong's film Poetry or... I talked um, a few months ago about uh, movies that were made for TV in the 1990s that looked at violence against women, and in particular one that starred Tiffany Amber Thiessen, who was raped, um, her character that she plays, is raped in high school, and, and she takes on the school, and and I talk about that and um, so it's come up in quite a few films that I've talked about I even talk about it you know the predatory male in Andrea Arnold's fish tank so this is a topic that's very important to me I will always talk about women's experiences and I will always champion women's voices so I don't have anything earth-shattering to add to this discussion I'm glad the discussion is happening. I'm glad that there are actually, there are consequences uh, to the men who are being accused. So, you know, Harvey Weinstein has basically been fired, you know, from the Weinstein Company. There are investigators, I think, in L.A. and New York City who are investigating the, the claims against him. There have been more um, allegations that have come out against other uh, predatory men like, um, you know, other directors. And I know that Bjork recently came out and she didn't say him by name, but she accused Lars Van uh, Trier, uh, Lars Von Trier, sorry, um, who's a Danish director, very well-known Danish director, of being very abusive towards women on the sets of his films, in particular the film she did with him called Dancer in the Dark. I'm not really a fan of Von Trier personally, and I don't really care for his films that much. Um, But I thought it was really a big deal for Bjork to come out and to say that. Uh, Just recently, just today or yesterday, um, the actor Anthony Rapp came out and said that Kevin Spacey sexually assaulted him or or made a come on to him when he was only 14 years old so a lot's coming out and it's men and women speaking out I know that Terry Crews did some tweets about a male uh, in the film business that grabbed his crotch or grabbed his genitals so 
this is something that's widespread within the film industry and it's widespread within our country and I think it it is uh, it permeates our society and it happens to women in all kinds of circumstances and it's a huge problem and um, it'll be interesting to see how things change though there's a lot of talk about all oh, the silence has been broken so now things are gonna change I worry so much that things are not gonna change enough I mean look at what's happened like with the gun control debate in this country you know just a few weeks ago we had 58 people gunned down in Las Vegas and nothing has changed in our gun laws to prevent that from happening again people talked about it for a few days and now three or four weeks have gone by and everybody has moved on and nobody is talking about it anymore I wonder if the same could happen with this that right now everybody's talking about it it's in the news and then everybody's just gonna move on now I know Harvey Weinstein was removed from the Academy um, of Arts and Sciences or whatever for the Oscars and the Academy Awards but from what I read Woody Allen is still in there Roman Polanski is still in there is there gonna be an institutional change in the way that movies are made and the way that we treat these male directors and the behavior that they get away with people like David O. Russell you know the things that they do to people on set and to women in particular Lars von Trier for example is there gonna be an institutional shift and I would like to know why you know all all these victims of Harvey Weinstein come out and people believe them and people say yes we have got to get rid of Harvey Weinstein and I'm glad for that and I'm glad that happened but a few years ago Dylan Farrow the daughter of Woody Allen did an op-ed in the New York Times where she said that he assaulted her and raped her when she was a child he molested her and nothing happened Woody Allen went to work with Amazon Studios he has continued to make films in which people like Kate Winslet and Kate Blanchett star in them and I thought it was really ironic when Kate Winslet came out against Harvey Weinstein she was saying all kinds of things like oh she was glad he was out and it's like well you just made a movie with Woody Allen like you don't have any kind of moral authority here so I just find it very interesting that certain people there's consequences right but then other people like Roman Polanski and Woody Allen well let's just keep giving them money and financing their films and let's keep talking about them I mean just the other day I was on Twitter and I like the Criterion collection uh, they are a film dis um, distribution company and they put out films and and they have this um, thing called the Criterion Daily where it's like they'll show they'll compile links to um, like reviews and and just things going on in the film world you know like trailers and news and things like that and there was the one day there was a thing about Roman Polanski and it was in the tweet Roman Polanski and then another day there was a review of the Woody new Woody Allen film and I'm like <laughs> women are on Twitter talking about the abuse they have suffered and then you nonchalantly mentioned Woody Allen and Roman Polanski in tweets and on your website like this is what I'm talking about like the cinephile community 
in particular is not able to look at directors who are abusive and violent and to kick them out. There is always this idea that, oh, well, the art justifies it. That, that whatever they do to get these films made or whatever they do to create the art, then it's okay, I guess. That as long as they make great films, then I guess it doesn't matter how they treat women or what they do in their personal life. And I have a serious problem with that. And I'm not one of those cinephiles. Do I love films? Absolutely. They are life-saving for me. Am I going to defend Woody Allen and Roman Polanski and watch their films and support their films? Hell no. Never. I will not do it. And so when I see other people do it, I just don't understand it. You know, I just don't. And I think as film lovers, I think we have to look at this. We have to say, why are there so many people who defend these men, these really terrible men, you know? And I know it's I know it's complex and I know it's difficult. I reviewed a film, uh, Blue is the Warmest Co Cover, um, Blue is the Warmest Color by um, Kashish and he treated Leia Seydoux and Adele Exar oh God, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her last name and there were really terrible working conditions and I talked about that in the review and in the episode and how that was wrong and I myself was conflicted because I watched the film and there were things about it that really resonated with me and things that I thought were really powerful I think for me sometimes it's the severity of it you know Roman Polanski can't even come back into the United States because of what he's done and you have Woody Allen's daughter accusing him of raping her you know for me that's on a certain level and so I will not support that whereas with Kashish's work it's I don't like the way he treated Leia Seydoux and Adele and I would never say that it's okay but I have watched blue is the warmest color so I'm not perfect myself and I am conflicted myself in that I know the working conditions for those actresses were not good and that they were wrong and and yet I do and yet I have seen the film and I did connect with certain things about the film about it being a coming-of-age story a young girl finding her sexuality a young girl falling in love so yes you know and we like films and some of the directors of those films have done some bad things and have been abusive and so I'm not saying I'm perfect I'm not saying I have all the answers I'm struggling with it even as I talk but when it comes to rape when it comes to molestation when it comes to the things that Polanski and Harvey Weinstein now is being accused of you know we have to not let them continue to receive accolades and continue to work and continue to have these amazing careers and there not be any consequences to what they have done so for me that's the line in the sand but we also need to call out male directors who are verbally abusive or who work their actors very hard you know I think of the conditions for a lot of the workers on the Revenant 
for Inuritu's recent film, The Revenant, I heard that, you know, there were really difficult conditions on that set. So it's like, we keep letting these male directors just do whatever they want. You know, they can be as abusive as they want. They can put people in dangerous situations. They can treat women horribly. And so we need to rethink film sets and, and what that means, you know, to be a director and the relationship that you have to your crew and your actors. And we also need to exile and kick out and and exclude directors who betray that trust. Or not just directors, but, you know, executives, producers, anybody in the film business, other actors who hurt other people, who sexually, physically, verbally harm other people. And there needs to be more shaming of them. And there needs to be, they're not allowed in. You know, they don't get to have the accolades. They don't get to have a career. They don't get to have their films funded. We're not going to say that that kind of behavior is okay. You know, it, it it's just not okay to do those things. Um, that's what has, so it needs to be an institutional change. That's what I'm trying to say. And I've already gone on about this way too much, more than I expected to. Um, the film industry, it's just, it's a really difficult place, I think, especially for women. And I'm glad these women are speaking up. I know that it's got to be difficult and it's got to be hard, but it's not enough for the, for the women to speak up and then for nothing to change systematically and for the men to not to change, right? That's what disturbs me as well, is that I hear a lot of women speaking out, but I don't hear a lot of men speaking out. I don't see men saying, well, we're going to change things, and this is not going to be allowed. And you know what I mean? That's what I want to hear. I want to hear, how are you going to change the system in Hollywood, in the film industry, and then how can we do that throughout the country, in all industries, in all workplaces, right? So this is complicated. This is just the first step. This story is going to evolve and change. I'm sure more allegations are going to come out. It's just, it's complicated when you love films and you may love a director's films, but then when you find out particular things about a director, what do you do? And how do you, you know, your relationship with their films obviously changes and you have to be responsible for that and you do and I think that certain directors or certain people in the film industry it's just not okay anymore to talk about them like they haven't done anything to just pretend like it's it's okay you know like Polanski you know and like other other people Stop talking about them. Stop giving them attention. Stop funding their films. You know, it has to be a systematic institutional shift. So, I've talked enough about that. <laughs> and I'm not the be-all, end-all on this. You know, there's a lot of other voices. I'm certainly, you know, not an expert on these things, but these are just my feelings and thoughts and opinions. So on to Don't Look Now, um, directed by Nicholas Rogue, released in 1973. It's based on a Daphne du Maurier short story by the same name called Don't Look Now. And I actually read the story a few years ago. 
and it haunted me and I reread the story in preparation for watching the film because it's the end of October I'm watching some horror films and don't look now sort of came up and I started thinking about watching it because I am a huge huge fan of Daphne du Maurier and a lot of her novels and stories have been adapted into really great films whether it's Hitchcock talk about a problematic director right Alfred Hitchcock um I have so many conflicts with Hitchcock obviously because of things he did in his personal life especially to Tippi Hedren um I don't know if anyone's seen the film The Girl with Sienna Miller. Very eye-opening and shocking. Um, so Hitchcock did adapt some of Maurier's stories. One was The Birds and another was Rebecca. Most recently we've had an adaptation of Maurier's novel My Cousin Rachel and then we have Nicholas Rogue's adaptation of Don't Look Now. So a lot of her stories have come into the mainstream have come into our cultural consciousness and I think her writing was able to tap into something she was able to tap into she reminds me a bit of Shirley Jackson in the way that she taps into the everyday horror of life and the unease and the instability that runs under the surface of our lives and in our interactions with people and um I haven't seen the My Cousin Rachel adaptation yet, but I did read My Cousin Rachel recently, and I was obsessed with that book. There is something about Du Maurier's books that once you start reading them, um, and I've read Jamaica Inn, and I've seen the Jamaica Inn ad adaptation. There were several, actually, one by Hitchcock, one a few years ago by the BBC. It has the girl from Downton Abbey in it, but I can't remember her name right now. There is something about Du Maurier's work that just absolutely consumes you. I mean, this this episode is about the Don't Look Now film, but it's not as it's about that. It's what it's going to be about, but it's also going to be about my relationship to Du Maurier's work in in some ways because her work is just when it's great, it is great. It is like you read it in one sitting you can't put it down like when I read Rebecca I still remember I was in college I don't know what year of college I was in so it was sometime between 2010 and 2014 and I just I was obsessed with that book I was obsessed with the story same thing with my cousin Rachel this year same thing with um don't look now when I first read the short story it will just grab you and there's so many gothic elements to some of her best stories as well but I mean if you don't know Demoria she was an English writer she lived a lot of her life in Cornwall learn more about her and read her books and I would say the same for Shirley Jackson I recently read Shirley Jackson's book Dark Tales it has like all all her some of her short stories that have a very gothic very horror like atmosphere to them and they're just masterful I feel like her and Maurier were just masters of just tapping into that horror of everyday life and that instability and the things that put you ill at ease and I just oh I love it so when you go into a film that is based on a story or a book that you really love this is also what I want to talk about with this review because I'm not gonna say that I loved don't look now the film 
I can't say that and that's why this review is a little bit unusual because I'm actually reviewing a film that I did not absolutely love. I would not give it five stars. Not personally. Um, it's a bit dated. That's the problem. I think it's a little overrated. I think it's a bit clunky. I think it's a bit, like I said, dated. It was made in 1973, 1973. So I don't know. It doesn't have that elegance for me um, that I'm looking for, I guess, in a film. So I didn't love it, but I love the story. And so I wanted to talk about things in the story itself that Du Maurier came up with. And so I think a good literary adaptation, it captures the essence of the story, which is its source. It can add to it, it, ex it can expand it, it can fill in the gaps. And to a certain extent, Nicholas Rogue does do that in this film. He gives the main characters much more of a backstory, much more of a life than they have in the short story. Because obviously with a short story, you have a certain amount of time or so much space. Now you can't put a lot in there. Um, but I just think usually when people say the books are better or the story is better, it's true. You know, it just... And I talked about this when I was talking about um, on my book podcast, which I don't update regularly at all, Her Head and Books. Um, but I did do an episode a little while ago about Call Me By Your Name by Andre Asimon. And that is coming out in November as a film adaptation. And I am living for this film. I am like desperate to see it. It's got Army Hammer in it. It's the screenplay was written by the magnificent James Ivory, who I love. I'm a huge James Ivory fan. I love his E.M. Forster adaptations. I love uh, Morris. I love A Room with a View. What else did he do? Howard's End. So I love James Ivory so much. And, um,. So I'm living for the Call Me By Your Name film adaptation. But at the same time, I know that it's never going to touch the book. Because I read the book in one sitting. I think I started at 8 at night. I didn't finish till the early dawn, the early morning hours. I couldn't put it down. I couldn't stop reading it. It was one of the most intense reading experiences I've ever had in my life. But I would say that Du Maurier's book sort of come close to that intensity. So... When you go from that into a film, the film is going to be a different experience. And I honestly, I sort of feel bad because I cannot watch the film as someone who has never read the story. So when I was watching the film, I knew what was going to come. So I think someone's review of the film where they had never read Du Maurier's short story would be completely different than what I saw because I'm coming to the film with a pre-knowledge with already knowing oh well this is gonna happen that's gonna happen and so I think there's always that conflict when you go to see a film adaptation of a story or a book that you really love it changes your experience of it 
it always does. You can't see the film with completely fresh eyes. You can't see it because you already know the story. So things may be changed in the film, but with this adaptation, it's pretty close to the story. A lot of the things that happen in the in the book or in the short story happen in the film. So I knew what was coming. I knew that, and just so you know, there are spoilers, tons of spoilers in this review. I'm going to talk about everything. So I knew that John dies at the end. I knew about the premonition. I knew that he gets stabbed. You know, I knew all of these things, right? So my experience with the film is very different for that reason. And if you did love the film and you haven't read the short story, then I would urge you to read the short story. I really would. And um, so lately I've been really attracted to horror films. And I think partly because I was reading Shirley Jackson, partly because it's the end of October, it's near Halloween, but also because I sort of consider myself a very haunted person, haunted by the past, haunted by the dead, haunted by people that I've lost. And this story, the story of Don't Look Now, and in, in both the short story and in the film, it is about loss. It's about a couple who have lost their daughter and how they are haunted by her death, especially the mother. And how the mother is looking for some kind of comfort and some kind of peace, I think, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. And so that's something that really resonates with me. And it resonated with me when I first read De Maurier's short story, that this is about a couple who are in a lot of grief and in a lot of pain. And um, I'm just going to take a sip of water. So that was something that I related to when it came to this film. I'm not usually into horror films or into gothic things, but I think, I don't know, maybe it's because it's, it's the autumn and it's getting cold outside and the leaves are falling off the trees and this is sort of a, this is more of a sinister season, right? Winter and fall because it gets darker earlier and it gets cold and and it just seems like the perfect time to explore more horror films to explore more gothic things and so I think I'll probably be reading some more De Morio, some more Shirley Jackson and watching some more horror films but the the topics the topic of haunting is one that really resonates with me I feel like a haunted person I feel like there are things in our lives that we cannot let go of for some of us and they're always part of us in some way so don't look now it's about Laura and John Baxter Laura is played by Julie Christie John Baxter is played by Donald Sutherland they are a British couple who lose their young daughter Christine to drowning and then a year later they go to Venice Italy where John is working he that's also something different in the film from the book or from the story is that in the I, th I believe in the story they're just sort of on vacation in Venice Italy whereas for the film he works in Venice he is like putting mosaics up at a church and so he, he seems to be some kind of architect um, or something 
and um so this is a couple who was profoundly traumatized by loss and in the film version the death of Christine comes at the very beginning of the film and it's very intense and a lot of people talk about the opening scene of the film and I think it is masterful it's it shows Christine playing outside by a pond she has this red raincoat on and she falls into the pond and she drowns and John sort of feels that something is happening and he him and um, Julia him and Laura John and Laura they're inside the house and the son and the daughter Christine are outside but so he all of a sudden stands up and he goes outside and he has this feeling that something is happening and he finds Christine in the water and it's just the way it was filmed is very surreal it's very vivid the colors that Rogue used red is a huge color in this film the the color of Christine's raincoat, the color of blood, the color of just all kinds of things and and so John runs out and he sees Christine drowning and he gets in the pond and he takes her out and he's holding her lifeless dead body in his arms. It is this very primal moment, it is this it's a primal moment of grief and mourning that here is his dead daughter that he's holding in his arms and she's probably 10 or 11 I guess and um it's it's a shocking scene and it's very very powerful and um so I definitely agree with people who talk about that opening scene it's it will haunt you and it is very masterful I think the way Nicholas Rogue um shot it and Donald Sutherland is quite powerful I think in that scene so at the outset this is a film about loss and grief and those are topics that are very important to me and I tend to be very attracted to films that are about those things um, because I've gone through a lot of loss in my life I lost my father um, in 2006 when I was 16 years old I talk about it a lot on this podcast usually just about every episode is about it um, in 2007 my grandmother died and then in 2009 my uncle died so within three years I lost three people and I by the age of 20 all these people of my life had died but the most devastating was my father I was only 16 he was my best friend we were extremely close. I would call him my soulmate in many ways and the love of my life along with my mother. Um, we were a very close family. It was just me, my mom, and my dad for a long time. And, um, you know, we were just really, really close. I think we were closer than most, <laughs> honestly. And I'm still really close to my mom and um, really wouldn't have survived all those tragedies happening one after the other within such a short period of time so I'm someone who I talk a lot about loss because I don't think we talk enough about it in American culture or in Western culture I think we see grief as a very finite period of time like a few weeks or a few months or maybe a year will give people and then we expect them to be over it or to move on or 
uh, a lot of people believe in healing and things like that or closure and I would argue that for some people especially myself um, grief is ongoing grief is permanent grief is constant even now I think about my father every day I think about my father usually at least once a week I cry about my father like cry deeply and intensely just recently things happened that made me think of him Tom Petty died a week or two ago my dad loved Tom Petty my dad gave me a CD of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers their greatest hits my dad loved music he was a huge huge passionate lover of music um, he gave me all kinds of albums and CDs when I was growing up I used to have a record player when I was really young and I remember he gave me Carole King tapestry and and then when CDs became big you know he he had a huge collection of CDs and um, he loved music he listened to it all the time and um, I still can't even listen to the music that he loved and he loved everything I mean he mainly went for classic rock um, he really loved Kiss he really loved Led Zeppelin and The Who but he also loved the Carpenters and he loved Glenn Campbell Glenn Campbell recently died and I thought of my dad he loved Chris Cornell and Nirvana and Soundgarden and Chris Cornell recently died this year and so I thought of my dad when Chris Cornell died and recently there was a bunch of documents released about the JFK assassination and my dad was sort of interested in history and he would watch documentaries about history but he watched a lot of documentaries about JFK and about the JFK assassination I don't think he believed any of the conspiracy theories obviously I think my dad was way too smart for that but I thought about when they released those documents a few days ago or about a week ago I thought about how that would really interest him you know like that would really fascinate my dad so I don't get to ask him things I don't get to wonder you know what bands would he like now would he like the national you know like I, I think about these things now because he liked rock and so I think of all the current rock bands like I wonder ooh, would he like the national or would he like you know whoever is like big right now in the rock world like what would he think of social media you know he died in 2006 so this was before Facebook this was before Twitter and social media before Spotify you know sometimes I wish I could I, I wish I knew what he would think of streaming and mp3s because he he bought CDs he, he always bought CDs and so I, I wonder these things all the time I want to talk to him I want to have a relationship with him his life has stopped and mine has gone on for 11 years you know 11 years of my life without him 11 years of memories that he's not part of I have a hard time coping with that like I have a hard time bearing that I find it really unbearable at times and so for me grief is constant grief is this constant state that I'm in because I'm always thinking about him and his absence is always present in my life I always feel the whole and I always feel what is missing it's <laughs> this this cavern 
you know, this, this hole in my life, in my soul, you know, and, um, for me, the real horror of life is loss. You know, for me, that is the ultimate horror. When I was told that my father died, that was a horrific moment for me. And it's one that I still think about, that I still can't believe I survived that moment of knowledge when your life is completely blown apart. That was horror to me. You know, like, forget about zombies, you know, or whatever. That is horror. That is everyday horror. Because you know what? In your everyday life, you're not going to come across a zombie or a werewolf or Dracula or a vampire. But you may lose somebody that you love in your life. Somebody that you didn't think that you could live without. And then you have to live without them. And that is horror to me. And so I'm very compelled by stories about haunting, about the not about the dead haunting us, the dead with us in some way, right? And that we cannot let go of the dead. And I think in some way stories about hauntings, not that Don't Look Now is about haunting, but I'm just talking in general. I think that's what that's about is some people's inability to let go. And that they are constantly haunted by people that they've lost. So that is the real horror to me is John falling into the water to get that little girl. And then holding her lifeless body in his arms. Um, that is a moment of pure horror. And um, I wonder sometimes if that's why I've, I've avoided horror films. It's like once you come into contact with that kind of horror it's like I don't want to relive traumatic things I don't want to watch traumatic things I don't want to watch things about violence or I still to this day don't like gory horror films I do not I I much prefer psychological things like the others that stars Nicole Kidman or Les Diabolique um for sure I much prefer the more psychological horror and I think don't look now falls into that category to some extent and so this film is about grief it's about how grief creates chaos in our lives and and brings instability how everything sort of falls apart you think of the little girl falling in the river the the father falling into the river behind her there's even a scene in don't look now the film that was not in the short story where john falls off a scaffolding when he's putting mosaics up at the church and he is like in free fall and he grabs onto a rope or something and so Everything is just falling apart, I think, um, you know, when grief happens and when loss happens. There is this scene when they're in Venice, and it's sometime after Christine's death. And this is a really important part of the story and of the film, is that when Christine, not Christine, but Laura, sorry, Laura, played by Julie Christie, and John, played by Donald Sutherland, they're in a restaurant in Venice, Italy, and these two sisters are there as well. One of them is semi-blind, or mostly blind, and she's sort of like a seer. She's sort of like a, a medium or a clairvoyant or some, uh, in some way. And 
Laura is helping her to the bathroom or whatever and and the woman tells her that she sees Christine that she can see the little girl at the table with them and it's this very powerful moment and when Laura is told that she's completely floored she has to like sit down it takes the wind out of her and she goes back to the table at the restaurant with John and she just completely collapses she falls on top of the table and all the contents of the table fall on her um she's completely wiped out by this knowledge that that she's been told that this this blind woman who she had never seen before had never known says oh i see your dead daughter at the table with you how would she have known that information um and that's a big a big part of it a big part of this film is and i'll talk about it more in a moment is the supernatural the paranormal one and i know a lot of people roll their eyes and but it's a part of this story and i think it it's can be part of our lives in some ways there can be inexplicable things that happen but i'm going to talk about that in a moment another part of this film that's interesting is the setting of italy of venice italy in particular but it's sort of it's very different than other films about italy because it shows the dark side of of this country that is often not shown in a dark way at all there are so many films out there that glamorize and romanticize italy i just mentioned call me by your name it's a very glamorous sort of italy that we see in that book and that i would think from the trailer that i've seen for call me by your name it looks like it's just sun soaked and and so romantic and sensual and gorgeous you think of a mainstream commercial film like under the tuscan sun um think of a film like the en the enchanted april um by Mike Newell I believe um, that's also about Italy as this place of renewal it's about these women these British women who go to Italy on for a summer vacation and how it really changes their lives it's based on a really great book by Elizabeth von Arnhem and I really loved the book and then I watched the film too I think this year or it might have been last year and um, or even David Lean's film Summertime starring Katherine Hepburn which I actually did an episode on for this podcast because I love it so much uh, I love David Lean for the most part and I really loved Summertime and it's about this woman who goes on a vacation to Italy and um, I think Venice actually I think she goes to Venice um, all of these films show Italy in a really romantic way in a beautiful way like you are just enchanted by it and captured by this place and like you immediately wish that you could go to Italy am I an expert on Italy no I've never traveled there you know but but here in America and possibly in other countries when we think of Italy we think of Tuscany we think of a very sun sun drenched romantic place with great food and great art and great history and and beautiful architecture and 
there is just this love affair, I think, with Italy in the movies. Um, this film is not about that part of Italy. It's set in Venice, but it's there's a griminess to it. There's a darkness about it. There's there's a murderer on the loose in Venice during this film and in the short story. So there's a sinister quality to Italy. It's almost the Italy, I would say the only thing recent that makes Italy look kind of scary is the Amanda Knox trial. And there's a documentary about it on Netflix, which is really interesting. I don't think it went deep enough, but it was interesting. And that sort of shows Italy in not the best light. Um, doesn't show the Italian police in the best light. Um, there was also a college student, I think, that went to Italy recently and got murdered. And that was kind of scary. I remember that. That was like within the last year or two. So those are the only things I can think. But in this film, Italy is much darker. It's much, um, much more menacing. And uh, the the short story, De Maurier's story, is like that as well. This is not the Italy of your dreams. You know, this is the Venice. This is a real place. I mean, I don't want to say that Italy is a terrible place or Venice is a bad place. Every place has its its dark side, right? I mean, I live in America. Crime happens here. People get murdered here. Things happen here. So any place you think about, whether it's Paris, Venice... London, you know, any kind of place that we may have in our dreams or that cinema may represent in a very dreamlike, beautiful way, every place has its dark side. It has its darker elements. Um, and of course, Du Maurier is so brilliant at bringing that darkness to the surface. And the film does the same thing as well. Of there's a murderer on the loose. There's you know it's it, there's a much more menacing and sinister aspect about Italy in this film. So I want to linger a bit on the the sisters that Laura meets, the blind sister in particular, um, who is psychic and says that she sees Christine. I think what makes the story interesting and the film interesting as well is is its focus on the psychic sister and I think with grief and loss I think anyone who goes through it anyone who goes through a very devastating loss you cannot help but think about that eternal question of what happens after we die is there an afterlife and um, and so the film and the story both are engaging with that of our attraction to mediums and our need for an answer about death. I don't think it's trying to give us a definitive answer about it. You know, is it true? Is it not? Is it real? Is it not? But it it, it is an important part, I think, of one's grieving is that you wonder about it. I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. And interestingly enough in the film, Laura is not religious religious either. She's asked that at one time. She's asked, oh, are you a Christian or something like that? And she says, I think she says, I don't know. I don't know if I am. So she is not someone who is 
who who would usually meet a psychic and and immediately believe them she's not prone to believing things about the paranormal or the supernatural but she comes in contact with this psychic this blind psychic sister or woman and i think she's open to it i think she's much more open to it than john john especially and you get this a lot from the short story but you get it from the film too john feels like it's a year later she needs to move on laura needs to get over this she's got to move on he hopes that venice will be will be a place where she will sort of snap back into life that she will be brought back to life by the venice possibly and that she will maybe be who she was before Christine died. Now, from the outset, that's ridiculous. Like, when you lose someone, when you go through grief, you are never the same. Especially if you lose a child. But already we start to see their different grieving processes. That he is, he seems to be okay. He seems to have moved on from it. Whereas Laura is much more devastated and unable to come to terms with it and to cope with the death of their young daughter and so i think for that reason she's much more open to the psychic woman that that something in her craves to know what happened to her daughter and it's very interesting laura's reaction to the psychic it makes her happy I think for the first time since Christine's death, she really feels at peace. And I think she feels free of the haunting worry that she's had about her daughter and what happened to her. Because that's what we all wonder when someone dies. What? Not just, when I say what happened, I don't mean the cause of death. I mean, what are they now? If they're not alive like I am, what are they? That's the eternal question. And obviously, as an atheist, I would say, they're gone. You know, that's what I think about my father. He's gone. We are our bodies. We are our minds. And once those stop working, there's nothing more. But there are billions of people on this planet that do not believe that. That have a spiritual or a religious consciousness or life and they believe that something outlives the body so when christine gets this information oh, christine God, i keep saying that laura when laura gets this information from the psychic who can see her little girl and the little girl starts to try to warn laura and john and tells them you need to get out of venice and that's what the psychic woman keeps telling them throughout the film. You need to leave Venice. So Christine is trying to get a message to them as well. Um, Laura believes the psychic woman. She really and truly believes it. And it, it gives her new life and it makes her happy. And you can see how she is after she gets the message and after she gets this information. She does seem lighter. She does seem happier. She does seem more at peace. Because she feels that her daughter lives on in another way. 
that even though she's not flesh and blood, her spirit continues in some way. Now, John is much more skeptical, obviously, and he worries that the sisters are lying to Laura or that they're exploiting her. And he he does not believe in, and has no time for what he calls that mumbo-jumbo. Um, that's what he calls it. He calls it mumbo-jumbo. For me, the film and the short story, it raises the issue of of how you feel about supernatural things. And I often wish that I could believe in supernatural things. And that's why I wanted to talk about this film, because I wanted to talk about all these things that for me, the story and the film bring up. And just recently, I had a dream about my father. And it came at a really difficult time for me, a time of a lot of depression. I mean, depression is pretty much constant for me these days, but it gets, it, it, it can grow in intensity. And um, it's been pretty intense lately, where I go through periods of feeling like a failure, and I feel a lot of shame, and I feel a lot of, I really feel debilitated by the depression, and it can be really, um, devastating for me. I was also going through some physical pain that I continue to go through because my health is, it's just, my body is just worn down really by everything that I've been through. I'm just a very weak person physically and I've been having teeth issues, issues with my teeth and I don't have health insurance or dental insurance so it's just, it's just something that I have to try to endure and um, but it's been really difficult lately for me and so this dream happened at that particular time on like one of the worst nights I've had of tooth pain in my life and um, and so I had this dream about my father and um, and when I woke up from it I was devastated by it because I always am when I have dreams about my dad they just feel so real and it feels like he's alive again and it's just what do you do with that what do you do with that when you imagine that this person is alive again that's why I wanted to talk about this film too I just wanted to talk about these things like this is almost like a therapy for me I would say like this is therapy for me right now to even talk about these things because I don't have anybody to talk to about them I'm just I just don't um it's just too raw to even speak it to someone, right? But I, I, the day that I woke up from the dream, like, I wanted to believe, and I said this to myself, I said, I wish I could believe that my father sent that dream to me, that he knew I was in pain, that he knew I was hurting, and he, and that the dream represented him being there with me, or him trying to comfort me, or, or something, but I obviously can't believe that, you know. Um, so I think there's always that conflict in some of us, myself included, between rationality, you know, the, 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 the rational view of things, you know, and an acknowledgement that there are things beyond our understanding that can be very mysterious. Um, things like premonitions, feelings, you know, like this gut feeling you can have, inexplicable experiences. And I think a lot of people have had them. 
A lot of people have had like, oh, I had this bad feeling and then something bad happened. Or when somebody dies and at this moment that they die, their loved one feels something weird. And those are not things that can be quantified. Those are not things that can be studied under a microscope or in a double-blind scientific study, right? But they are experiences that a lot of people have had. Haunted houses, you know, visions, things like that, that quite a few people have encountered or experienced. Um, I think a bit about the Polish director, Krzysztof Kieślowski's films. A lot of his films, like The Double Life of Veronique or his Three Colors trilogy, is about the these inexplicable connections between people. These, it's It can't be put into words. It's sort of this unspeakable thing. But it's a lot about chance and the hidden, unseen connections between people and coincidence and serendipity and... and these mysterious things that happen to us that we can't explain. So I think on the one hand, you can be a very rational person, but you can also have very strange experiences, perhaps with the supernatural, perhaps with the paranormal, and you can't fully explain it to anybody. And I think that does happen to people. Um... And I used to, I still do at times, I do watch shows about the supernatural and the paranormal and mediums. Like, I'm just going to be honest, especially after my dad died, perhaps maybe a few years after he died, I went through, like, this thing where I watched a lot of shows about mediums and stuff like that, and, you know, I don't, I don't know what to think, right? I mean, it, these are TV shows, how much of it is is made up how much of it is is luck of the medium just coming up with certain things or how do we know they haven't researched the people that they're talking to so i definitely understand that when you're watching a television show you don't know how much is real how much is scripted how much is hidden you know but i think there was this part of me and maybe there still is the that wants to believe in mediums or wants to believe in psychics or clairvoyance. I just, I don't know what to believe. I know that some people have had experiences with mediums and things like that. And hell, there's even been mediums who have like helped solve cases, like murder cases. I don't know how often that happens though, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I haven't done any research about it, but, um, so I think there is this thing in us that wants to believe that the people that we love are still alive in some way and that they that there's something separate from their bodies or that there's another way that they continue to live and um I would never I would never begrudge anyone or put anyone down for for believing that or or wanting to believe that or who have maybe themselves had experiences that they can't explain or that are very mysterious. So I'm sort of undecided on it. I've never had any kind of experiences like that. Um, but I think when you lose someone you love, I think there is that desire for it. 
you know and maybe that's what some of that is those ex those mysterious experiences are just the desire to want um to have contact with the dead or, or to want to see them or have a vision of them it's hard to know it really is but and this film even features like a seance scene where Laura goes and meets the sisters again and they do some kind of seance and and um they continue to warn you know Laura and John to leave Venice and um they get a phone call that their son's had an accident and so Laura leaves um for home and John says that he'll come later and you know he is still in Venice and he thinks that Laura has left and then he thinks that he sees her on this boat when he's crossing a river or whatever he's crossing the water and he sees Laura on this boat with the two women with the two sisters in the film she's wearing black she looks like she's in mourning or something like that and um, he's completely confused and of course the big twist as many of you know is that he's actually seeing a premonition of the future he's seeing something that hasn't happened yet and it's really Laura returning to Venice because John has been killed and that's what happens at the at the end of the film and I think what's really interesting about these kinds of films about about loss and grief but especially when they are married to the subject of horror because not every film about grief is a horror film but there are quite a few out there where people like to take the idea of loss and put it with horror and um, I think why films like this can be so chilling is because you imagine that they could happen to you you know that this you know John loses his daughter this this happens every day people lose their children so these are things that are within the realm of possibility for your life or for other people's lives and I think sometimes that is the most powerful horror film is the things that cut really close to the bone and something that could happen in your everyday life and I think a film like this or, or the short story by Du Maurier they really show us that you can't always trust reality or what you think you see um, they always have this instability about them and they always a lot especially like the short stories for instance I think about like Shirley Jackson stories especially often they deal with like psychological disintegration you know psychological instability where you think you see something and you are not seeing what's really there there's a level of paranoia there's a level of invention of imagining things of reality never being fully stable or never being what you think it is and that's certainly part of this film as well of John thinking he sees Laura with the sisters and why does he see that and then realizing that it's a premonition later on but then it makes him when he realizes that Laura is back in England he starts to doubt his own sanity 
you know, in his own psychological stability because he thinks, well, why did I see her if she wasn't really there? And so these films are always destabilizing in that way where you don't always know what's real and you don't always know what's dream or what's imagined. You know, it makes me think about the episode I recently did about Carnival of Souls, which came out in 1962, directed by Hurt Carvey. And that's a film, uh, it's a horror film, it's a psychological film as well, and you never know what's real and what's not in that film. It's so destabilizing, it's so dizzying in that way. And I think some horror films can be a lot like that, where you, it's always playing with the, with dream and with the unreal or with the unconscious or the surreal. And so you're never sure what's true, what's being imagined, what's a dream. You're just never sure. And so that I think this film sort of plays on that as well of, well, why is John seeing her? Why did he see her if she's in England? And so he doubts his own sanity and, and doubts his own, his own vision. Like, why did I see this? He can't make sense of it. And that's what hangs over when you're reading the short story. As well, why did he see her? And then what's so masterful about the short story is the ending. And um, what I found interesting about the ending of the film was that they did something that the book did not do, which was they made they made the he thinks that in Venice he's he's out at night and he sees this child in this red raincoat and he thinks that he's chasing after the child and he's going to save the child and at the beginning of the film Christine had worn a red raincoat so for him when he sees that red raincoat um he remembers Christine and he couldn't save Christine at the beginning of the film and that's part of the impetus for why he runs after the child in Venice is because he thinks that he can save the child and just as Christine ran along the pond outside of their home the the child in Venice runs along the canal and you can see the reflection of the red raincoat in the water and so there is this echo or this reflection in a way of the the first scene and the last scene that I thought was pretty interesting and explains a bit more why he runs after the child and that he thinks that he can save the child in a way that he couldn't save Christine his his own daughter and so I got to thinking that you know John thinks he's over his grief or that he's doing much better than Laura but I think the final sequence of the film proves otherwise as he chases what appears to be a little girl in a red raincoat just like his daughter wore when she died. Um, does a part of him believe that it is Christine? Or is it just his desire to save the child the way he couldn't save Christine? You know, maybe for that moment he's destabilized and maybe for that moment he does think it could be Christine in a way. But, I mean, we know that he at least does want to save the child. I mean, either way, I think it is a manifestation of his grief. 
when he sees this little child in a red raincoat of course as the ending shows us it's not a child at all it is a dwarf dressed in a red raincoat and it's the murderer in venice and um and it has a knife the the little person um has a knife and i i'm not sure if it's a man or a woman um and they they take out the knife and they stab john to death and that is the ending of the film i felt like the short story was much more impactful with the ending it was much more shocking it was much more and then everything made sense that when he saw laura with the sisters on the the canal or on the water he was seeing the future he was he was seeing what had not happened yet um he was seeing laura come back to venice for his dead body that had been murdered so that's what he had seen and that's what de maurier brings together at the end of the short story and you're just like oh my god i mean like you never even saw it coming never i mean up to that point you just thought well he must have just been seeing things but then you realize he saw the future and now he's being murdered right there and um like the ending of that story is unlike anything i've ever read like it was amazing the whole time you're reading the short story you're just breathless you're like oh my god you know you you can't wait to turn the page and to see what happens next and then it's one of the most um creative endings of a story that i've ever read personally i don't know how demaria came up with these ideas like whether it's rebecca or my cousin rachel or the birds or don't look now i just I really feel like she's so underrated and I don't understand it at all like I thought I think she was such a masterful writer like a genius writer in the way that she constructed plots and created characters and and put these ideas together for her books like who even comes up with this but really at the end of the day I really feel like the short story and the film they're about grief and they're about loss and um they're about how both John and Laura are really haunted by Christine. John thinks he's not. You know, John thinks that he's above it or that he's over it, and he's not. Which is what the film, I think, deepens for us. Is I think it deepens that grief. And obviously film can do different things from a book. Um, the 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 short story is brilliant with tension and suspense and pacing but obviously a film can more humanize the story where you see john in donald sutherland you see julie christie as laura you know you see the grief on their face or the pain on their faces you see them as a married couple you get the the texture and the substance of their relationship and it's very strange to me how this film has become like the sex scene is such a big deal about this film when um laura and john are having sex it it wasn't anything that shocking to me i had heard about it before i watched the film about this sex scene 
and I was like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. It was just, it's just a sex scene. I mean, there's some nudity, but I thought it was pretty natural, pretty realistic. It, it, it didn't shock me or anything. I think it's kind of overblown or overrated. I mean, maybe for 1973, that was very scandalous. But, um, I, I didn't really see the big deal in it personally. That's why I didn't spend much time talking about it until now. For me, this is much more of a film about grief and loss and and a couple trying to cope with their daughter's death in very different ways. But also, Laura's attraction to mediums and to the, the psychic um, woman that tells her about Christine and obviously it's a story that engages with the paranormal and the supernatural and so that's a big part of it i don't think you necessarily have to believe in those things to get enjoyment from it but i think it can raise questions and it can make you think about it um like i said i'm undecided and i don't know but i know that other people have had those paranormal or those supernatural experiences or just things that are mysterious, things that you can't scientifically verify and that you can't rationally explain, necessarily. Um, and I think you have to res respect people's experiences in some way, as long as they're not hurting other people with it, you know. Obviously, I'm sure there are mediums and psychics out there that do exploit people and do take advantage of people. And I would never be okay with that or, or condone that. So this film engages with those things and and so I think for someone who's going through grief or who has lost a child or, or lost someone, I think a film or a story like this can be an opening, it can be a space to to talk about or to think about loss and um, I thought it really showed the devastation of loss and how it can haunt you and it can it can become a huge part of your life and that's why I wanted to talk about it like I say I didn't love the film I think there are dated aspects of it I think there's some clunkiness about it um, Donald Donald Sutherland's hair bothered me I, I know I sound shallow even saying that but something about his hair just bothered me a little bit so I don't know it's just something about it didn't completely work for me I can't put it into words. It's just one of those things. It's like sometimes you watch a film and you really feel it. And then I can't say I'm a huge fan of Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. I mean, I haven't really seen them in anything except this probably. So maybe it's their acting or, or something like that. Not that they were terrible. You know, I don't want to get crucified for these comments. This is just an opinion. But I, I just, I don't think it's the greatest film that I've ever seen you know, personally. Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was an interesting adaptation. I thought it certainly fleshed out some aspects of the story that, you know, that Du Maurier had left out or had not explored. And I think it's pretty faithful to Du Maurier's story and to the essence of it. And it gives you that shock and that surprise that, that she did as well. So, um, so it was certainly true to the to the story 
And that's always important, I think. Um, but as I say, when I watched it, I watched it as someone who had read the story. And so I could never come to it with fresh eyes or watch it without knowing what was going to happen. Um, but a really powerful exploration of grief and loss of the supernatural and the paranormal and and what we wish for, you know, when we lose someone that... Laura is very desperate, I think, for an answer about what has happened to Christine. What happens after death? Is there an afterlife? Um, and the sisters are able to give an answer to her. And um, so just a really masterful story. I'm glad it was made into a film. It definitely, when you were reading the story, it felt like it could have been a film. And... um yeah I'm glad I watched it I'd always wanted to see it because I did love the story so much so yeah. yeah I thought it was a good literary literary adaptation but obviously I'm always gonna go with the short story you know I'm such a cliche or a broken record in saying that oh the the book is always better you know but for me it definitely is but I do as I say I think the film added some other elements to the story that makes you look at it in a different way and so I think that is an accomplishment in and of itself that that the film deepens certain things fleshes certain things out expands on things and can make you see the story itself in a different way and can give you a different perspective about it and really deepen deepen how you feel about the story itself and about the characters and, and what happens in it so I really did I really did enjoy it for the most part. I just don't think it's like a five star out of five stars film for me. And that's just my opinion. But for other people it could be a five star film out of five stars and that's perfectly fine, you know. But um but I just wanted to talk about some things about the film. So thanks for listening. I appreciate your time. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.